0: In the 21st century, all politics are climate politics. So states the new book, Planet to Win. In this episode, I talk with one of the authors, Thea Francos. We discuss specific demands socialists should make of the Biden administration with regard to climate change and the administration's potential responsiveness or Pushability, as Rio Francos calls it. More generally, we consider the differences between the US's two major political parties on climate change. How large and significant are these differences? Rio Francos also describes her research on the extraction of lithium, a key component of rechargeable batteries, and the political challenges this extraction poses for the left. Thea Riofrancos is assistant professor of political science at Providence College and has served as visiting researcher in universities in Chile and Ecuador. She is the author of the book Resource Radicals from Petronationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador uh, that was published by Duke University Press in 2020. She's also co author of A Planet to Win Why We Need a Green New Deal from Verso Books in 2019. Rio Francos is also an organizer with the Eco Socialist Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA. I started by asking Rio Francos to assess the Biden administration's stance towards the problem of climate change.
1: It's clear that the climate movement, climate justice movement, and I think especially kind of the Sunrise Movement and and some allied groups that, that work closely with them have had an effect on his his emphasis on climate that you mentioned, and also to some extent on his orientation to climate policy. He's you know realizing that you know climate is an opportunity to publicly invest in what he called what his policy platform calls like disadvantaged communities what the climate movement tends to call frontline communities and that you know there isn't a trade off between Uh, action on climate change and between economic and and economic justice. Right. So he's, you know, taking steps towards incorporating what we might say is like a uh, less radical version of the Green New Deal, like Hmm. this basic idea that we can address climate and and economic insecurity at the same time. So that's good. And it's a a good not because, you know, he deserves an award for like coming to this basic (laughs) realization, but more because it evidences some degree of malleability of his administration or pushability, right? Like the movements have already had some effect. And, and I think, quite frankly, the um, strength of, um, especially, you know, in the early part of the primary season of the Bernie Sanders campaign had a real effect, impact, right? And, and hmm. those, those um, unity commissions and, and that the two campaigns kind of had representatives at. So, you know, we're starting in a slightly better place um, uh, than prior Democratic administrations uh, on climate issues. We know from polling data that climate is a much more central concern of Democratic voters. Um, and so it makes even on a real politic, you know, kind of uh, popularity kind of level, it makes sense for a Democratic administration to focus on this more. Um, but the question is, like, how transformative will their plans be? Hmm. We know, like, even with recent news coming from climate science, that the situation continues to be worse than we previously thought, which was already Pretty bad, right? That that um, that 2020, I think, is is almost tied with 2016 as you know one of the more warmest recent years on record. That we might be like closing the window on 1.5 degrees being a, a possibility, um, uh, and and so it 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 is it is getting very concerning. So the scale of the problem is growing by the day. Um, our awareness of the scale of it, and also obviously ongoing emissions that are contributing to it. Um, meanwhile, there's this like devastating economic crisis um, that that um, especially um, working class communities of color are bearing the brunt of in the US, but you know it has affected a, a lot of of the population. So he's coming into office with dire climate crisis with dire economic crisis. It is like the perfect moment for a policy paradigm like the Green New Deal and for, like really substantive intervention on the part of the federal government using federal investment, purchasing power, um, uh, regulations, all of the tools in the playbook to like push forward a transition that is just uh, for for workers and communities. Um, and there, I think there, there. So I'm kind of setting this up to say that the the scales of the crisis are clear. He's already been pushed a little bit, um, but it's he's not gone far enough, mm-hmm. right? He has he um, the amount of money that he's promised to spend is better than than prior of way better than prior Democratic administrations and way better than, you know, you know, like in the 2016 primaries or or something like that. And so in the 2020 Democratic primaries, we had like um, uh, um, really, I think Bernie Sanders um, helped like kind of with his policy plan, which was 16.3 trillion dollars, helped say like. This is uh, an issue that needs trillions of dollars, mm. and so Biden has increased the amount of money that he promises to spend on it. So that's good, but it's still not close to what Bernie said and what I think on the climate left or eco-socialists think is necessary. That that's one issue. Mm. The second, it, so one thing we can push him on, put it that way: how much is going to be spent, and and I mean the public, the government spending this money, right? Mm. Um, um, a second issue is um, how exactly, quote unquote, disadvantaged communities are going to be defined and how they are going to get the investment that the Biden um, uh, campaign promised them. So in his campaign, he said 40 percent of all climate investment should benefit disadvantaged communities. Well, we know from the terrible history of like means testing in the U.S., from the forms of of like the ways in which um, uh, public spending has supposedly attempted to target like the least well off, we know that that often means that actually not enough money goes to the the people that need it, um, and all sorts of limitations and parameters are put and and onerous bureaucratic processes on how actually communities or individuals or families access um, you know that public investment. So I'm concerned about how we're actually to get the money to working class communities, right? Yeah. Um, just on, a, I mean, on a logistical level and what the kind of policy vision is is around that. And and one other place I would say, and, and I'll sort of pause here, that I think socialists in particular should be really pushing on yeah. is um, a couple, two, two that, that I think go together well. One is public ownership and asserting in a more um, muscular way, the role of the public sector in this transformation, right? So it's not just about public investment in the form of let's say public-private partnerships or you know like tax credits for, for solar companies or whatever it is. And and not that sometimes those things don't need to happen in a transitional program. But I think that something more muscular, like outright public ownership, whether it's of, you know, energy utilities to transition those utilities into fully renewable. Mm. Right. Thinking about the role that the public can play in a in a more ambitious way. And then related to that, thinking about the role of of a jobs guarantee. And this has, I know, been divisive among within the left even. Right. Let alone among, you know, Mm. mainstream, uh, you know, politics. But um, but I do think there is uh, a lot of. socially and ecologically essential labor that the transition will will require. And there's a clear role for the federal government to provide for a jobs guarantee that channels that towards decarbonization, to renewable energy, to the care economy and guarantees, you know, a really dignified wage um, and benefits and worker protection. So that the jobs guarantee and public ownership, I think, are places where socialists can really push the envelope on the Biden administration.
0: Hmm. Wow. Well, that certainly sounds like a pretty uh pretty comprehensive program. So, uh, so it, just to recap what you said, uh, how much can we spend, or how much should we spend rather? That's one point of uh, pushing. Um, who exactly are the disadvantaged communities? Like, how how do we define them, and uh, you know, represent? Uh, how do those communities represent their interests in? Uh, in this transformation um and then the role of the federal government in terms of um uh public ownership and a jobs guarantee did i sort of cover the ground there yeah, absolutely yeah um okay so now you know what what this so so i, I you know i think these are all uh, you know on the left and as socialists i think we would characterize all of these as uh, at minimum, uh, you know, really sensible, if you know, and and sort of desirable. Um, and I'm actually going to bump up one of the questions I was going to ask you, uh, you know, how how do we make sense of the country's um, willingness and capacity to go anywhere near there in light of uh, what we've seen with the Uh, the pandemic response. So, uh, you know, and there's multiple aspects of this. We could talk about um, uh, the limits of, uh, in this case, the limits the federal government placed on itself, uh, but also the intrinsic, you know, resistance uh, of uh, uh, people in the U.S. or state governments to being, you know, sort of uh, kind of uh, to act in a coherent way. Um, You know, the massive, continuing popularity of uh, of trump sort of uh, and and that getting mixed up with this resistance to you know a simple thing like wearing masks to prevent you know yourself or your your neighbors from dying um uh so what what do we what lessons do we take from our society's abilities to actually move towards these goals and therefore the ability of socialists to to push in the directions that you, that you laid out.
1: Yeah. I think that, that we see two kind of contradictory though, though I'll, maybe argue that we can reconcile the contradictions analytically, at least. Um, two kind of contradictory facts about the, everything that you just laid out very nicely in terms of, of, of how the, the government has and hasn't responded to COVID and how ordinary people have, have kind of uh, responded to the government's response or lack thereof. Um, and so I think on the one hand, we do see um, in, in opinion polling, to some extent in electoral outcomes, uh, in, in political reporting that talks to everyday people, I think that we do see that the um the sense that th- the idea that government has a responsibility to care for the population in a moment of crisis is a popular one. Hmm. Uh, It doesn't mean everyone agrees with that, right? I just mean that, you know, I would say roughly more than 50% Hmm. of the population uh, agrees that the government should have a role here, should have a role in developing and disseminating a vaccine, should have a role in economically protecting and supporting uh, individuals, households, um, workers, especially essential, so-called essential workers, and also small businesses, right? And and, and, and educational institutions, so there's like widespread support for that. We saw that you know direct income support in the form of these stimulus checks has been really popular, um, and it's even it's been so popular that some you know Republicans have have supported yeah. uh, you know such measures because they're aware that their electoral fortunes might depend on whether they were perceived to have helped people out. Right. So, you know, that's a positive thing to take away for the politics of climate change. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, that people in moments of crisis, when they see the impacts on themselves or their communities or through empathy, when they see others being harmed, um, they can support rather dramatic um, policy interventions, including ones that shatter pre-existing consensus, like around deficit spending or austerity. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this idea that you can't spend beyond your means as a government. It seems like now no one thinks that's the case anymore yeah. Couple people in the Republican Party, right? So, okay, so that's helpful. What's worrying, and what the other part of your summary got to, is that at the same time, we see the like entrenched power of right wing. forces um, that we're still, I think, as socialists trying to grapple with how to analyze, especially after January 6th, Mm -hmm. after the insurrection, um, you know, how dangerous are these? How armed, how widespread, how coordinated? Right. I mean, there are these key questions that I think we're still all kind of researching, but certainly The right wing is um, uh, is is powerful, you know, understatement, perhaps Um, they demonstrated their power in in both, um, uh, you know, citizens and I mean, meaning non-state, you know, actors and and governors and and, and mayors like resisting and state legislators, you know, resisting mask um, orders and and reopening the the economy in dangerous ways. Mm -hmm. And so. Both of these things are true at the same time. We have broad social support for government support and intervention around a a health crisis. And we have a recalcitrant, revanchist, and concerningly violent right wing that resists such government support. Um, And, you you know, we could say that these are contradictory. I would say one way to bring them together is that the right wing will grow more and more dangerous um, uh, in its tactics, rhetoric, and, and, you know, its potential for violence as it becomes actually less representative of the broader population, right, Mm. as they can no longer rely on democratic means of contestation, participation, you know, vote getting whatever, um, and even in the extremely limited democracy that we have in the U.S., right? We have the Senate, we have the Electoral College, we have this two-party you know uh, duopoly. We you know we have lots of limitations on on what I would consider substantive democracy in the U.S. But you know, nonetheless, you need votes to get to office, mm-hmm. and Dem and, and Republicans are finding themselves in a situation where um, over time they are. they they are becoming less and less representative of like broad swaths of the population. And so they turn to these extra parliamentary, actually extra parliamentary kind of tactics. And that is concerning, certainly. Hmm. So I think, you know, that's one way to hold together these two things. I want to just add one other thing to throw that all into, you know, to kind of like mix that all up a little bit, which which also is based on your your summary. Which is that, you know, despite the fact I think we have popular support for government intervention in a pandemic and maybe hopefully with the climate crisis. And despite the fact that at the same time and for related reasons, the right wing is getting more violent and um, and and frightening. Um, we also had another concerning outcome from the uh, from the November elections, which was that Trump was able to not enough to win the, the popular vote, let alone the Electoral College um, uh, vote. But he was able to expand his coalition. And he was able to expand it um, to include more non-white voters, mm. and this is concerning and surprising, right? I think for a long time there's been this kind of common sense that as the country gets more diverse, which is the tra- trajectory it's on racially and, and ethnically, um, uh, they, they, it's, it's going to be harder for Republicans to win, and, and that there's, there's some truth to that. But I also think there's we shouldn't be complacent on the left and kind of assume that that people of color or immigrants um, are, are are automatically like left wing, right? It, it's always tied to their specific experiences, social location, you know, whatever. We, you know, sometimes the politics of their home country, you know, the, the countries yeah. that they may have emigrated from. You know, I won't get too far down that path, but it is worrying to see Through a kind of economic populism combined with like, you know, the fact that Trump was the one that put his name on those first stimulus checks. Right. With a kind of economic populism combined with appeals to law and order, to to patriarchy, to kind of patriotism, um, not always directly linked to white supremacy. He can or someone like him could, you know, continue to 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 create a somewhat more multiracial base. Um, for Trumpism, and I think that is um, of the things I've listed so far might might be one of the most difficult challenges mm-hmm. for the lab mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. come to terms with and to organize around.
0: You know, you've you've put words to something that uh, I've been uh, sort of uh, turning around in my mind, but uns- unsuccessfully. So, uh, so that was very clear, and and it's really helpful. I, um, uh, y- you know, Trump, uh Actually, even in the first round of uh, the stimulus, uh, and and certainly in the second, was quite consistent about saying that he wants the highest possible uh, amounts. And I, you know, the two thousand dollars, I thought he was just basically lifting from Sanders. But, um, uh, uh, and you know, if you saw some of the uh, sort of interviews or fragments of the people on January sixth who were uh, who were outside the Capitol, um. A bunch of them were seemed as upset at the Congress and at Republicans for opposing, you know, a larger stimulus as they were at the election results generally, um, and so so I, you know, I fear that you're correct that we might be in for, uh, you know, someone who who is actually a more skillful politician than Trump, who never seemed to have gotten past the. You know, charismatic leader phase into a right. an institution building sort of phase. Um, yeah. Um, uh, okay, so that's that's sort of a little bit of the the politics. I'm wondering if you think that the 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 vaccine effort has any anything to teach us. So, I I actually would give, uh, I and whether it's the administration basically not doing anything drastically wrong. Um, uh or you know something else but uh it you know this was a remarkable turnaround uh, for a a vaccine and um does it you know does it give us any sort of lessons for what what if for a really aggressive federal sort of climate change policy might yield mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right in terms of the, And I, you know, I should say I'm not a public health expert or epidemiologist or any of those things, but I, you know, read the news and, and I was also impressed with the speech speed of of testing um and of um uh, and, and of coming out with the with with a vaccine and ensuring it's 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 or a few vaccines and ensuring their their safety. Um, and that happened like dramatically faster than past experiences to my, you know, at least to my understanding with developing vaccines. So I think that, you know, that should be that that could be perceived by by this broader American public as a positive sign about the government's ability to be directly involved in innovation, right, in mm. science and innovation, and not and this idea that we just leave science innovation to the private sector. Of course, first of all, totally misunderstands the origins of innovation, which usually involve the state. Yeah. Unfortunately, often the military industrial complex, but you know that's a story for another day. But regardless, they involve state funding at the basic research level, and many of the innovations in telecommunications. Um, the internet, and of course, in, in medicine, uh, 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 kind of have their origins in either direct state led research or in state industry collaboration, right? And so I think that this is yet another example of that, that has some clear lessons for developing green, so-called green technology or climate related technology. Um, You know, the, the unfortunate thing is that the, the mass dissemination of this vaccine was, was bungled by a combination of, of neglect. And I think Trump's like, just kind of like losing interest in his own role as, as president. I mean, he, you know, he got obviously like very swept up in these conspiracy theories about the elections, and there just wasn't much federal coordination, which you need in a highly fragmented federal system where you have all of these subnational, you know, units that are kind of on their own. And so that that unfortunately has not demonstrated to Americans like the competency of of government, which is something that I get concerned about with climate change, meaning if, if Americans don't think that the government can be competent, um, then as your own question suggested, like we, we are in trouble with their ability to kind of sign up for, you know, a state kind of led, uh, I mean, a government led um, uh, climate plan. So there's it's sort of mixed, I guess I'm saying, like the innovation piece could be impressive to people, but the deployment piece, not so much. However, I think, you know, there's a possibility and so much about politics is, is timing, right? That like. The the Biden administration coming in at a pivotal moment of really, really uh, some really important failures in the vaccine dissemination effort and turning that around quickly if they can. Right. Mm. And I and I, I mean, the Trump administration has done so little to coordinate state and local uh, vaccine um, storage and, and dissemination that almost anything would make it better. I mean, just paying attention to it at all. But it seems that actually Biden has hired some pretty good public health experts um, to be part of his team. And, and a lot of his first $1.9 trillion stimulus plan focuses on funding the vaccine effort. Um, and so I think that things could turn out that, A, most importantly, more people get the vaccine and we get you know over the curve of this virus at some point. So that's the most important thing. But secondarily, in terms of the politics of it, that people are for the first time, maybe since the sixties or the thirties, or, you know, these other moments of massive government uh, public investment kind of see the immediate sort of fruits of, 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 um, of state led transformative efforts. And I, I think we just need, as we've been discussing throughout this interview, the more of that, the better for the politics of, of climate change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and we haven't even sort of, uh, you know, touched on, the anti-vaccine, uh, you know, popular sentiments, which would also have their analogs in the climate change sort of. Exactly. That there's resistance, you know, that's deeply ingrained and that one can't, I don't know, at some level, you can't just say, well, this is all just bad politics and you put mm-hmm. the right people in charge. I mean, you know, we people we have to change people's minds. And, um, uh, okay, so maybe after that, sort of detour if I can uh, bring us back to the uh, the possibilities and limits of uh, of a new administration how How important do you think it is that um, uh, the Senate uh, it will there'll be a, a you know a very precarious majority uh, for for the Democrats. Uh, f- so with reference to climate change. Uh, or A green new deal type uh, action how 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 important is this it is. It is very important. And I say this as someone that is
1: n- by no means a fan of like the sort of Democratic Party and it's in its kind of establishment variant or, or the Democratic leadership uh, in general at all. Um, so it's, I'm not saying this because I believe that once the Democrats get uh, get the, the, the majority, the, the bare majority of, of, of the Senate, that they're automatically going to do good things, not at all. But the opposite situation of Republicans retaining that majority was obviously going to be a major obstacle to any transformative climate legislation at all being, you know, conceivable. And to the point where, you know, the people that I organize with in DSA and in, in other, you know, climate kind of left spaces um, were like, I guess we're going to do a state and local strategy. I mean, like it was really concerning the idea that there would just be no path forward for 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 federal legislation. And so now at least we have a path forward, which doesn't mean a path assured. Um, but, it, but I think that organizing under conditions of the possibility of pushing are just have a more um, forward-looking, optimistic. It's easier to galvanize even on an individual level. It's, It's, you know, the depression around climate and around just the various, you know, uh, intersecting crises that face the U S and the world can be really demobilizing. Mm. And so to think that everything is totally foreclosed, it's just like, you know, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast, but fuck it. You, you can edit that <laughs> out later if you want. Um, but you know, like, it's like, why even get out of bed in the morning? So the, the, the idea that there is an opening not an assured outcome, but an opening towards the outcomes that we desire and fight for really helps, I think, um, on a sort of um, uh, psychological level, but, you know, and then also on a practical political level. You know, that all being said, as I was saying earlier, like I don't have full faith in Democratic Party at all. That's an understatement. And then they're like specific members. Of course, Joe Manchin is always brought up. But, you know, there are within the Democratic Party members who on some renewable energy issues might even be harder to win over than, you know, the almost extinct couple of moderate Republicans. Right. Mm. And so that that's something, you know, when we get down to the granular level of who are we targeting, how are we swaying these people, what kinds of pressure campaigns, how are we mobilizing their own constituents to put the feet, in them, right? Like we have to get very detailed um, and very um, um, sort of tactically intelligent about how we're working this political landscape, but we have to work it and we have the opportunity to work it. And Biden has said that he's going to try to pass some, you know, pretty major piece of climate or, and, or kind of green job, green infrastructure, um, uh, legislation. Um, some people in the left of the climate world are, are a little worried That um, on the one hand, it's great that he's coming out of the you know, right out of the bat with this with this big stimulus plan of one point nine trillion dollars that mm-hmm. No, hopefully we'll pass basically through budget reconciliation. He says he doesn't want to do it that way, but, you know, that would be the smart way to do it and probably would just pass that way. However, you know, will there be political energy out of in his administration for pushing for something similarly large on climate not too long after? So, you know, there's a big role of of DSA, of the Sunrise Movement, of um, of climate justice and environmental justice movements and communities to really like hold him to those campaign promises and make sure that it's not just like this one shot stimulus that we actually um, change the nature of the U.S. economy from one that focuses on fossil fuels and precarious gigified jobs to one that has dignified work and is based on renewable energy. I mean, I'm just outlining the basic plan. But I absolutely think that it is good and important that we won Georgia or that the Democrats won Georgia. And I think just I'll end this here, um, which is to say that I also think it's good that it came out of so much grassroots organizing. Like no one can say Georgia was one because of just great fundraising and some good TV ads. Like Georgia was one because of door knocking. Hmm. And like, I think that the Democratic leadership really needs to get that Um, That these, you know, progressive insurgent campaigns that have helped mobilize the base and bring like organizing back into some, you know, democratic races is is a um, uh, not John Ossoff, but at all. I don't I mean, he's he's a centrist. But what I mean is just like the broader um, uh, shifts. That have happened in the Democratic Party, partly through insurgent campaigns like AOC's, like Cory Bush's, like Jamal Bowman's, you know, and kind of bringing back this idea of actually organizing people. And I think Georgia is a big sign um, that, or big evidence that organizing can work and and can change, like you know, from community, you know, change vote outcomes from from red to to blue, so to speak. And so I think that's a good lesson for the Democratic Party to learn. I'm not sure that they will, um, mm. but but I think certainly canvassing and organizing matters and can be effective, including in very difficult contexts.
0: Do you include the, you know, uh, just the drive to increase the number of uh, uh, especially black voters in Georgia? So the, you know, the out and out just voter Uh, you know, registration sort of drives. Yeah,
1: well, which is circles back to what we were talking about earlier when I was saying that the Republican Party has to increasingly rely on these. Anti-democratic kind of counter-majoritarian tactics, whether they are regulatory, you know, things like gerrymandering or, or votes voter suppression, like you know, changing the rules of, of what you need in order to vote, or whether they're extra parliamentary, like street violence of the Proud Boys, right? But mm. all of that is part of like a kind of uh, range of of tactics to um, that are counter-majoritarian that go against like you know the, respecting the the political preferences of the majority, and I think dismantling that and re-empowering voters not just as voters but as like politically active members of a polity that might also go to protests and you know might also do other forms of community organizing is absolutely essential um even when it happens to elect someone who i'm not thrilled about mm-hmm. like asif right i mean like you know i think empowering people is not just about this discreet um you know candidate that they might be electing in that moment but just sort of um, having pe- having ordinary people kind of re-encounter their political capacities. And that can spill over in all sorts of ways, including in ways that end up being threatening to the democratic leadership, um, you know, and, and electing more insurgent or progressive candidates in the future.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I have to, so for me, the last few years, I, I would say especially the last few months have, have really been a little bit of a journey in terms of, you know, as you started out this segment by saying that uh, you're not, uh, you know, this is not in any way to say that you know you uh, you're a fan of the Democratic Party and so on. And um, to say the least, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, it's exactly where I come from as well. Um, and you know, between the pandemic response and you know the climate change issues uh, and just basic uh, resist uh, like. You know franchise issues. Um, uh, you know I've had to sort of, uh, sort of come to terms with that. I, I, you know, I would be prepared to say that at this point there is a qualitative difference between the two parties in a way that is hard. I think for at least for me to square with, you know, what would our more traditional emphasis on. Well, they're kind of you know, Tweedledum and Tweedledee as far as neoliberalism goes. And Mm. in some ways, the Democrats are even worse because they say one thing and then do another. Or, you Mm. know, um, um, but on, on, on these things, like, you know, basic sort of issues of, uh, countenancing white supremacy, uh, you know, voter suppression, uh, basic resistance to, uh, you know, the necessity of uh, doing something on climate change, um, so 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 i'm I'm just saying what my own sense is here that uh I you know I, I think the gulf here is really wide and I'm trying to sort of put into words for myself how to balance that with the you know still sort of you know we still have to it's all going to be pushing and it's all going to yeah. be um uh you know working against you know a two-party system in which neither fundamentally is, Going to operate in the interests of the majority of the uh, the population. So I don't know. Uh, th- that was sort yeah, of yeah. No, random, I but... I think
1: I think it, it that all makes sense to me. I um, when I first got involved in politics, or, or kind of near the beginning of my involvement in left politics, I I volunteered before I could even vote, actually, on the Ralph Nader campaign. <laughs> mm-hmm of 2000, right? So I was 16. Um, and I'd probably been on the left active for maybe like a year prior to that. So I was like pretty new to as a teenager. Um, and I absolutely had the uh, opinion that you just laid out, which is like the two parties are like, you know, two heads of the same monster and, you know, neither represents working class or is interested in any kind of progressive change. And the Democrats, you know, are are kind of like do this bait and switch thing, might say one thing and then they're in power and they do another. Um, and and so I, I totally agree that or I, I should say that I empathize because I had a similar perception. And I, I think that there was something to that. There was actually a long, um a longish period of of re- bipartisan consensus in a variety of issue areas, right? Where the Democrats only marginally distinguished themselves from Republicans, mm-hmm. whether it's neoliberalism, foreign policy, but also on things like crime, immigration, you know, mass incarceration, so- so-called security issues. There were just really shades of, of difference and um, and major forms of, of major areas of, of consensus. And I think that has changed uh, in a couple of ways. One is, you know, what political scientists call asymmetric polarization so there has been some increasing polarization between the parties and between their underlying voters as well maybe even more so um but it's been asymmetric or it started in an asymmetric way and now it's actually getting a little more symmetrical which is what you're talking about so Mm. it started by the GOP moving further right um, and their voters, you know, moving further right as well, um, and we see this particularly in co- in terms of congressional outcomes, um, I, I, but also in terms of the state legislature. You know, Senate moves a little more slowly, but Congress and state legislatures, we see like this big rightward shift. And at first, the Democrats were kind of just staying where they were, but were you know, they they were getting further from the geo. Only because the GOP was getting so far right. However, that I think in the last few years or my understanding is and I'm actually not an American. I don't focus on the U.S. in my political science work. So, you know, there are other folks to ask about this. But my understanding is that Democratic voters on a number of issues have moved started to move left Um, and a lot of that is, so it's not just, it's now more symmetrical polarization, Mm -hmm. right? At least at the level of constituencies. So for, you know, we see this with climate, we see it with black lives matter and policing, we see it with immigration, um, and to an, to an extent we see it with foreign policy though for various reasons foreign policy always gets less at, much less politicized than it should be and it's not talked about as much and so voters don't you know have as firm opinions on it but on those other issues we do see a leftward movement of voters that's to some extent manifesting itself in things like the expanded squad right in the in the congress like mm. we're getting more support for left-wing candidates um we have groups like the justice democrats that are specifically exist to primary uh um, democratic representatives whose views no longer really align with their uh, with their constituents so their constituents have moved left um and, and a lot of that has to do with social movement energy i think i mean a lot of these issues are issues specifically that we've seen social movements organize around whether it's climate whether it's standing rock and the fossil fuel extraction whether it's obviously black lives matter and policing also many waves of protests around immigrant rights and around border detention and things like that so you democratic voters i think tend to move as movements make issues salient and Mm. sort of clarify the stakes of issues and so I think you're right that we were in a period in the 90s and early 2000s of like not enough polarization in our political system. Like the two parties, it wasn't really good competition on a sort of thinking about what normative democratic politics should look like. You want at least, you know, different options and the options were not distinct enough. Mm. And that, and then we got with the right moving more right. And now I think we do have depending, it's district by district. It depends, right? But 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 we're at least getting some more differentiation of the parties. And I think some of that, is due to, um, is due to activism on both sides, really, but activist, but, you know, the social movement activism on, on the left.
0: Hmm. Well, that's a, uh, that's a very hopeful, uh, cast, uh, on it. And, and I, and I, uh, it instinctively, it sounds, you know, the fact that this election turned out basically, you know, 70 plus million people on each side. Um, uh, and even though on the democratic side, it was as much, at least, uh, you know, disgust for you know uh, Trump rather than real enthusiasm for you know Biden. Um, right. Uh, the polarization is is as high ha- as it's been, and and perhaps that's where we need to be. Um, yeah. 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 Um, let's move to you know, and this is uh, uh, directly uh, your having to do with your your research and your recent um, writing, including your. Uh, your uh, book, "Resource Radicals." Um, uh, so maybe if you uh, could just tell us a little bit biographically how you got interested in um, the research that you uh, that you did or are doing in places like Chile and Ecuador, um, uh, and then we can also follow up with uh, you know the re- how that relates to um, uh, climate change activism uh, here.
1: Sure. So um, I've been on this like resource extraction beat for like eleven years now, um, which I have to say makes me feel a little bit older than I'd like <laughs> to. But that—that's about how long it's been. Um, I um, um But actually, even the story begins a bit before that, and I'll I'll be I'll 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 be quick about it, or we'll be here all afternoon. But <laughs> I I basically lived in Ecuador in two thousand eight. Um, that was before I went to graduate school, um, uh, and. Um, And I was there when Rafael Correa, the former left-wing president of of Ecuador, who who was president for for 10 years from 2007 to 2017, I was there in the early part of his time in power, and I just saw, um, and it was sort of, you know, I just witnessed, I should say, uh, somewhat unexpectedly, How much his left wing government and the broader left politics of the country were divided over this question of resource extraction and also Mm. of indigenous rights. Mm. And so I was like, oh, actually, the left, you know, there are different positions in the left over how to approach the environmental consequences of extraction, over how to approach issues of, of ownership, um, how it affects communities, how it affects indigenous rights. like It's a much more complex issue than I had previously imagined. And it was sort of at that moment that I got interested in, in, in resource extraction and, on, and in different radical left critiques and visions of, 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 of extraction. Um, And a couple of years later, I returned um, to do my fieldwork for my dissertation, which then became the book, Resource Radicals. Um, And, you know, there's a lot to say about, about, you know, what was so interesting about it. But I think that, you know, one was just, why was it, and I, and I treat this as an empirical question, like, why was it that the left in Ecuador, both, you know, the state and social movements, you know, all of these different actors, why did resource extraction become so contentious? That was one thing I wanted to understand, and that took me into, you know, understanding the place of of extraction in economies in the global south, you know, in the broader global capitalism, you know, understanding the political economy of extraction and why it so can be so politically uh, tense. Um, And then, um, you know, another was to understand specifically sort of within that why movements in Ecuador and elsewhere in the world, but but very much so in Ecuador, have adopted this very critical stance with respect to extraction that I call anti, you know, anti-extractive movements, right? That they are against all forms of, of extraction um, on the grounds of environmental consequences and of the consequences for indigenous rights and territory. And so mm. I wanted to understand this particular kind of what I call resource radicalism which was a little different than a classical Marxist or dependency theory or world systems theory kind of critique of extraction, which are other left-wing ways to think about extraction, which focused more on, you know, on, on, um, on foreign ownership, on the domination of foreign capital and tended to have, you know, concomitantly like demands for nationalization or, you know, for sort of state control or for worker control. And there are more radical variants, but not necessarily like against extraction, right? So what emerges more recently, and I think this will be familiar to listeners, like in terms of, um, uh, I mentioned earlier standing. Rock in terms of what listeners are probably aware of, like anti-pipeline protests. So there's this broader kind of radicalization of environmental and indigenous politics around the question of resources that that happens um, over the past decade or, or a little bit more. And so that was something I wanted to understand in Ecuador, and the book delves into a lot of the specifics of that. And then when I finished that project and it became you know a book on the shelves, I needed to you know switch gears to to something else and. Um, But I was still remained extremely interested in Latin America and the contentious politics of extraction. But by that point, um, I had become much more active in climate politics Mm. and Green New Deal politics and eco-socialist politics, specifically within the Democratic Socialists of America. And I was, you know, thinking about how can I do something on extraction that relates to Latin America that also relates to climate change? And I'm sorry. I mean, I'm just like sort of walking you through what my thought process was, which I think can sometimes be interesting to uh, to listeners in the sense of like the how researchers come across their projects is often like it's kind of a black box. But you know, this was exactly how I came to being interested in lithium, which is an extractive sector. You know, so in that way, it shares features with oil and and you know traditional forms of metallic mining um, that I was um, uh, investigating for resource radicals. But it's an it's a sector that is deeply tied to green technologies, renewable energy, and therefore implicitly to climate change. Um, in order to uh, decarbonize, meaning to eliminate carbon emissions from you know, vast swaths of the economy, hopefully all of it, uh, we need to um, uh, do things such as electrify transit. We need to hmm. stop like driving vehicles that, that burn fossil fuels. Um, we also need to get our power grids, the grids that supply power to to homes and businesses off of fossil fuel energy like coal or gas and and onto renewable sources. Both of those goals require lithium because they require lithium batteries. So Hmm. so electric vehicles, whether they're buses um, or, or individual passenger cars or those electric scooters or bikes, those all have lithium batteries in them. And then energy grids that rely on renewable energy have this tricky issue of needing some form of storage because the sun isn't always shining. Right-wing people love to point this out, like, the sun goes down, and then where do you get your renewable energy? <laughs> well, I mean, there are solutions to that, and one of them is battery storage, right, which can store it um, on the scale of hours, and then there are other ways to store it uh, for longer time periods that, you know, we could get into another time. But lithium batteries are basically, everyone agrees, you read about it in the New York Times, the Financial Times, whatever, are, are key to the renewable energy transition. They're key to so-called gr- Marine technologies. Um, the interesting thing, and I'll, I'll I'll close out this answer out out here, um, uh, unless you know you want you want me to talk more about it, but just to say that lithium extraction has some real social and environmental consequences. And it also, at the sites of extraction, I should say. Mm. And it and it also um, is, is kind of a part of this whole set of global supply chains that produces green technologies. And those supply chains are, you know, surprise, surprise, like organized according to the logics of global capitalism. They involve the exploitation of labor. They involve pollution at various points. They, you know, sort of tend to entrench Uh, national economies and their position in the world system. So the resource exporting countries are ones that are often formerly colonized places. Right. And the ones with the more advanced manufacturing, with the important exception of China, tend to be in the so-called global north. Right. In Europe and in Europe and the U.S. So so there's lots of concerns about the ways that the shift to renewable energy could re-entrench the inequalities of our world order and result in n- new forms of, ec- of environmental devastation that may not be as put us in a total emergency thing like climate change does right affecting the entire planetary system but have some very concerning effects on biodiversity on water access on on soil on all sorts of other things that environmentalists care deeply about and local communities care deeply about
0: hmm, hmm. Uh. So, you know, walk us through the, so, okay, so lithium, so first of all, where is it mostly found?
1: So lithium is interesting because it's, um, this is often misunderstood uh, about lithium and about so-called rare earth minerals. Um, Neither of them are rare at all. They're actually very abundant in the earth's crust. Uh, And so there's lithium everywhere, including in the U.S., and there's some lithium projects in the U.S. Uh, Okay. where it's found might be different than where it's extracted from, right? And that's like a truism about extractive sectors. You might have the resource deposits in lots of places, but for a variety of historical, political economic reasons, certain places tend to be where it's extracted from. Mm. And that's the same in, in in with lithium. So where it comes from the most are Chile, And Australia. Those are the top two places. And then you have Argentina, you have China's domestic resources that it uses for its own domestic, you know, industries, Um, though China also invests everywhere else in the world as well. Um, And then you know, you have some possible potential. Uh, uh, additions to that list. So the, there's a few projects in the U.S. that are advancing in the environmental permitting hmm. stages, um, and you have similarly projects in Europe that are advancing. So both the U.S. and Europe actually want to get involved in the extraction, um, their governments, I should say, want to get involved in the extraction uh, end of green technologies. But for the time being, Chile and Australia are really the top places, and, and Argentina, I believe, is, is uh, Argentina and China, I forget which is third but and fourth, but somewhere in there. Hmm.
0: And so you know, uh, in in Ecuador, you encountered these um, uh, differences among the left that you hadn't um, uh, expected. Uh, so so, can you spell that out uh, in you know, with reference to let's say, are there analogs in the case of lithium extraction yes. in Chile? Or, uh, yeah.
1: Yes. I know it's like, you know, it's a typical thing, I think, for researchers once they're doing a second or a third or whatever project to start seeing patterns. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's hard to know if you're just you have these, you know, uh, sort of uh, conceptual blinders on and you just see the same thing or if the same thing just really keeps happening. So I'll put that epistemological question to the side. I definitely have seen some similar patterns with lithium, the case of Chile where I did a few months of field work last, uh, last year I was there for for four months, fortunately got in some field work prior to the pandemic, making mm-hmm. that not possible for a little while. Um, but what I saw there was on the one hand, a um, growing anti-extractive movement that was composed similarly as in Ecuador of um, on the one hand, um, uh, indigenous communities, those that are specifically those that are politically organized and sort of have formed organizations and are taking political positions on issues. So you have indigenous organizations in the north of Chile that are affected by um, lithium extraction and that are starting to take more militant stances around its social and environmental impacts. And they're doing so similar to Ecuador in alliance with radical environmental groups um, and also kind of scientists and, and um, uh, you know, lawyers like left-wing lawyers that are helping with with different claims against the companies, right? So you have this interesting kind of coalition in Chile and um, and to some extent, also in Argentina, um, and we could, I'm not sure, maybe we'll emerge more in Bolivia as well. Those are three countries that have major lithium deposits, but Chile is the most advanced in terms of ex- extracting it. Mm. Um, so that's that's one set of things. But then on the other hand, you also have, and this is a little more grounded in left wing political parties and in um, l- labor unions and in like workers that, that have organized around this issue, you have demands for not like per se living extraction um, or or eliminating it but for nationalizing it, right? Mm. So there have been demands to nationalize a particular company, actually, that used to be a state-owned company and now is, was privatized under the dictator of um, uh, Augusto Pinochet. So there's this private company that used to be state-owned, SQM, and they're one of the big lithium investors in the world, actually, including mm. in Chile. And there have been demands to nationalize them. There have been demands um, around uh, worker grievances and 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 worker organizing that's faced a lot of repression in the lithium sector. So there are more, like, ownership and labor kind of demands and grievances. And then there are the more social and environmental. And hmm. sometimes groups have both of those, but oftentimes it's like different groups with different social bases and kind of different ideological uh, inflections that tend to advocate for one or the other kind of left-wing, I would say, approach to, hmm. to resource politics.
0: Hmm. I, I mean, is am I understanding this correctly that at a very basic level, uh, you know, I, I could be for nationalizing something uh, including, let's say, with a very, you know, progressive uh, uh, sort of uh, treatment of workers, because I'm still interested in the revenue. Um, so I, yeah. I want to keep that going. Um, uh, and that that can come into conflict with, uh, you know, people saying that, no, the process itself is so violent um, in all sorts of ways um, that uh, we shouldn't be doing it at all. Um <laughs>
1: Absolutely. I I think that those can come into conflict in the exact way that you just laid out. I often wonder, and I I mean this, like, literally, I wonder, because I'm not sure how inherently in conflict those hmm. are hmm. meaning you know one of the arguments um just to take this to a different terrain but i think it's useful one of the arguments on the left in the us and and in other places in the world too of of na- so called nationalizing the fossil fuel industry so you know recently there have been calls on 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 the left and and from you know from some left wing think tanks from like you know recently established like like lefty kind of economists those those types of folks that like we actually in order to to transition the fossil fuel industry. We can't wait for this incumbent, you know, powerful actor, fossil fuel companies, to like transition themselves to renewable energy or out of existence, right? And to stop their own profit seeking activities. Like, why should we expect that? We should really assert the power of the state over these companies, take them over you know, even through forms of compensation, like you could buy them out. They're not mm-hmm. worth as much now as they used to be because of the recent price crashes and demand crashes. Um, and because, you know, they're, they're, they're like not going to be around forever. Right. And I think they're aware of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a clear role for the state to ca- step in, you know, whatever form of expropriation or buying out with some compensation, but nationalizing the fossil fuel sector in order to phase it out. Right, because Mm -hmm. we can't rely on the private sector, a Mm -hmm. private sector company, to phase itself out. So there are lots of interesting policy um, uh, approaches that folks can, you know, research on the uh, online about what nationalizing the fossil fuel industry might look like and why it's beneficial. And the reason I bring this up is because you know there are ways to think about public ownership and/or worker and community ownership, which are you know somewhat distinct, but regardless, these different forms of ownership that are not private. Um, that they play they can play a role in potentially um, either phasing out environmentally bad things um, and or just better managing the environmental and social impacts of a given industry because they're more rooted in the constituencies that are affected by them they're not driven by profit they're driven by some other goal um, or logic right and so i think you know i think we should play around with just because there's going to be lots of um, challenges of this nature in the coming transition to the renewable sector, whether it's phasing out fossil fuels or whether it's managing in an environmentally actually sustainable way, the extraction of resources that are needed for renewable energy and green technology, right? What, whichever side of the transition we're talking about, mm. I think we should think, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation about like how public ownership or community control or worker ownership or these sort of non, um, Uh, um, uh, non-private forms of ownership can be helpful in managing um, the you know, in, in managing so, so those types of industries. And so maybe there isn't a, uh, inherent conflict hmm. between national ownership or worker ownership in the case of Chile's lithium and, um, and invite and a much better environmental management and much more actual participation of indigenous communities in the, the decision-making and the economic benefits and, and everything, right? Maybe we could put all those pieces together somehow, but, yeah. Uh, you know, I would say maybe unfortunately, um, uh, but I also am wary to pass judgment. But, you know, unfortunately, often these strains of the left do end up in conflict with one another um, rather than there being really s- spaces in which we can come together and think, you know, labor is, you know, we need to stop overexploiting labor in the lithium industry. They need to have their rights to collectively bargain like the state should have more regulatory power over this vis-a-vis capital and indigenous communities should have full territorial rights? Like, how do those fit together? I'm not trying to say they fit together neatly, but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure they're in total tension or mutually exclusive tension with one
0: another. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I can, I can certainly appreciate how, uh, you know, uh, how interesting that is as something to tease out, um, you know, from the point of view of Political science, but also as as you're saying, you know, with real sort of implications for all of us, um, right. uh, You know, and I wonder if so. You know, if you if you know a country like Ecuador, uh, I know Chile is wealthier, but you might just have less room to maneuver uh, than mm. uh, you know. I wonder if the U.S. is actually one of the places where, where we could do what you're. What you're envisioning is that maybe these things need to be in conflict only temporarily or uh, only uh, in, in ways that we can actually, you know, sort of um, uh, overcome uh, in the interest of a much bigger, you know, transformation Uh uh, of how we uh, sort of get and use energy. I mean, you know, as a smaller or poorer country, you might actually be stuck for a while. Uh, you know, you, you need the wealth. Um, uh, and I guess we could talk about that separately too, is, you know, uh, um, uh, but but anyway, um, uh, you know, I, it, I also wonder if, countries like Norway have anything to mm. teach us in regards to um, uh, and, and, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but I know that they've, they've been, you know, uh, I mean, they're obviously aware that the, uh social democracy depends on, uh, you know, oil <laughs> and, right. uh, um, right. and it's a real tension. And, um, uh, and it's not my sense is there's, you know, there's deep unhappiness about that, but, but what do you do? You need the GDP, you know? Right. Um, uh, and, um, yeah,
1: anyway. So, and no, I, I absolutely agree that countries in different positions in the world system are really have different options immediately available to them to sort of overcome these dilemmas of the extractive economy, um, and transition to, to less or, or, non extractive, you know, economies or, or social kind of forms. Um, and, you know, I think that, that, Gives us two lessons. One is the lesson you took from it, which is that uh, in in the U.S. for various reasons related to our you know global position, to our total kind of like amassed wealth, um, to uh, you know the even the the specificities of our currency being like the global kind of yeah. currency for trade, you know all of those things um, uh, give 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 policymakers um, more fiscal and political room to maneuver, right? There's no other hegemon that can like intervene in the U.S.'s politics yet. I mean, maybe that will change actually. We're in a very multipolar or nonpolar world right now. And I can imagine, you know, really the U.S. not being anything like the global hegemon, and maybe you know within our lifetimes, but mm-hmm. but it, but certainly right now you don't have to worry about uh, a coup from elsewhere. Only a coup from your own uh, government. <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> j- jokes aside, but no, I and I think that you know in, the second lesson though is for the rest of the world. So that's kind of the lesson for the U.S. for the global South. I think that. Um, and I'll just speak for Latin America because I'm not as much of an expert on, on South Asia or, or, or Africa, other other regions of, of the global south. Um, but but I, I would guess it, it holds true there as well, is that, you know, it's hard to go about this as one country alone. Mm. And I think, you know, one of the most interesting things to think about from the 1970s were the attempts of then called third world countries to coordinate amongst one another and think about what it would look like for, um, commodity exporters, uh, in the third world to, uh, create, um, shared priorities and organizations and, um, and kind of like change the rules of the economic game saying, no, all of the sugar exporters, we're not going to export for less than X. Right. And to actually have forms of economic coordination among global South countries. Right. And the only real, uh, uh, artifact we have of that era that still works though there's lots of criticisms we made of it is opec mm. um but there were the idea for a lot of other similar commodity organizations uh, for the commodities that the global south exported right and so one is thinking about how can global south countries ally and coordinate so that they're not in a race to the bottom competition with one another that's one thing and then kind of the other side of that coin is i think you know especially incumbent on activists in the global north to call out how the international debt and finance system keeps countries in this race to the bottom and in this like need for constant growth and extractive resources because they're paying off debts that are totally unsustainable and immoral in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, but also to you know serve the needs of their population in the midst of a pandemic now and in the climate crisis in general. So I think that you know for a country like Ecuador the transition to a post-extractive economy or Chile even a country that's slightly wealthier than Ecuador, right, but still Stuck in that position. Um, Changes need to happen at the regional, kind of among the global south, and at the um, international scale. And that's an ambitious thing to to say, but I think we should be real about what the obstacles are to quote unquote development. They're not emanating from within the countries primarily, they're emanating from a structural position um, in the world system.
0: You know, there I will uh, sort of offer a counterpoint, uh, though though not necessarily a disagreement. um, uh, You know, there is this issue of uh, the internal sort of, uh, uh, you know, class politics of these countries. And I'm thinking, so in the case that you mentioned in the 70s and, you know, even earlier in the 60s with the non-aligned movement. Exactly. uh, you know, and then what successively seems to happen. So uh, I'm getting the dates wrong here, but you know, for example, India, um, uh, you know, opposed um, uh, national claims on, uh, I think it was the Antarctic uh, or resources found. Uh, you know, there, you know this belongs to all humanity. Um, right. Until India developed the ability to send ships there, you know, and then then that's done you know, so, you know, then, right. then we drop out of that. Uh, I'm probably uh, mixing up the specifics of this, but but there's a few cases like this where, uh, you know, and now we're seeing that with, um, you know, uh, claims about, uh, you know, uh, rights to things found on the moon or Mars or whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, that does have something to do with what's happening inside uh, what we call the global south. Um, and there are, you know, they have, uh, it's not, as as you've you know uh, discovered in your or or told us about in your research, um, mm. uh, you know they're not all cut from the same cloth, and and there's uh, highly exploitative uh, sectors in those countries that are eager. Oh, to, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so, and I
1: think you know none of none of the the world system stuff. I mean, I don't mean to sound abstract about that because none of that functions without the complicity, we might say, of domestic ruling classes or, you know, domestic forces, right? It's not like the international, just like the international kind of system just arrives in a country and says, do this. Like all of it happens through various alliances and partnerships with domestic um, forces always. Right. And Mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, even in my own world of Latin American studies, sometimes I think that people overstate the power or of international actors or, or don't realize how they always are working in alliance with domestic actors, including in the original kind of transition to neoliberalism. Um, but I guess to, to put it in a different way, because I agree with your, your pushback or point, um, is that even even governments that are well-intended, face limitation, well-intended and supported by the types of popular coalitions that would, you know, give them good politics um, are, are face Low structural limitations. Right. So even in the Korea government um, uh, now Korea never had a perfect line at all on resource extraction. Mm. I mean, he always had he always saw extraction as this um, way to develop the country in a way that I think was really not attuned to the environmental impacts at all. Um, or to the financial economic limitations about once you have a commodity bust, once the prices are not so high, um, you know. So that aside, he did try early in his administration. He went to the global community and said. If you give us X amount of money, and I don't remember off the top of my head, um, uh, we will not extract oil from this UNESCO biodiversity hotspot, the Yasuni um, rainforest. Um, And actually, the amount of money that he was asking for was half of what Ecuador would have made if they had extracted and sold the oil, Hmm. right? Hmm. And and that was a really innovative proposal that he actually got from civil society. It was a pre-existing proposal, and his government took it on. And, you know, whether he didn't... Um, negotiate perfectly. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, explanations, but regardless, the international community, some money was put in, a UN fund was actually set up, but not enough. And so he eventually said, okay, we're going to extract it, right? So, you know, even in, and then there was a big pushback to that. I mean, I won't get into the whole story. It's very interesting though, but, you know, even governments that that put forward these kinds of proposals of like, we're going to seriously transition to a non-extractive um, or less extractive kind of economy, uh, it, 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 the 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 sort of the the global order in which they are situated in needs to cooperate and support that, right? Uh, otherwise, there there's really structural obstacles to individual countries in the peripheries um, of global capitalism, like making this transition on their own when they fi- simultaneously have to. F- Feed people. I mean, as you as you noted in the prior question, so that's it's more. I would think about it as constraints and limitations, and also, or more positively, like the need for cooperation and global redistribution um, uh, in a, on a number of fronts to lift up to lift up the possibilities of these countries making a transition um, that would be more environmentally and socially beneficial.
0: Oh, that's it. I mean, gosh, that sounds really easy. That, that we could do. <laughs> I know what's stopping the world. I found this conversation both sobering and encouraging. It was a welcome change from some currently popular assessments on the left regarding climate change. One of these is that we are doomed that it's too late to reverse the worst effects of climate change. Another is that capitalism is fundamentally incapable of reversing climate change. Whether or not these assessments are accurate, they're not terribly useful. As the authors of Planet to Win state, quote, Ultimately, capitalism is incompatible with environmental sustainability, but we have just over a decade to cut global carbon emissions in half. We don't imagine ending capitalism quite that quickly. They describe the fight against climate change as, quote, a war of position, to borrow a phrase from the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, uh, a war of position that is a trench war to hold off every extra tenth of a degree of warming, end quote. Socialists in the US cannot abstain from this trench warfare, even as we work for more radical change. Among other things, That means we have to face the reality that one of the two major political parties in the US poses a qualitatively greater threat than the other to the planet's future. In forthcoming episodes, I will be returning to guests from the beginning of this podcast last summer and ask them to assess their insights in light of our experiences since then. Join us in Thinking Aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it.